This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Paul Anthony Nelson, and in the cave tonight, we are joined by Emma Westwood. Hello, Major Paul Anthony Nelson. You love that, don't you? I do. <laughs> I don't know whether anyone else gets it, but there's probably a couple of people out there who get it. And Faith, dear Faith, here in, yes, she's nodding. She gets it. Wow. <laughs> thought you'd be a little young for that, Faith. And I'm also joined by Ms Sally Christie. Hello. Hello. I'm just letting you all know that I get the reference as well. Good. And Jeannie. We should put this out on social yeah. media. People should come back to us and tell tell us if... Oh, you just gave it. Sorry. I did. Sorry. I just oh. did a, Anyway, edit that out of the podcast, Faith. (laughs) (laughs) On tonight's show, we will follow Chloe Grace Moretz at a technically legal but incredibly creepy distance with Isabel Huppert in director Neil Jordan's stalking thriller Greta. We'll also be joining Michael Caine as he gets a few of the old governors back together to pull one last job in the true crime tale King of Thieves from director James Marsh. And we'll also uh, be calling Triple Zero and getting on the line to the Danish uh, single location thriller The Guilty. But first, before we get into it, we are going to uh, talk about a, uh, a great director who died this week, but I am also going to mention that I totally messed up list last week and pulled a mistake. So Nina Arianda from, um, help me, Stan and Ollie, yes. uh, who played Ida, uh, Ida, was not in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I was oh. confusing her with Alison Subol. Um, I don't know how. Don't ask me how. That just happened in my brain. It was a brain fart. I apologise to everybody. Uh, we will forgive. Are you, we going to have a weekly corrections corner now? <laughs> let's not. Let's not do that. <laughs> For me, we might need it. Uh, but Nina Arianda, the, the the thing I'd, I'd seen her in was Florence Foster Jenkins. So maybe it was something to do with you know thirties ah, costumes or something. Yes. Completely. Um, How dare you? I know, right? This is a film criticism show. And two weeks, three weeks in, I've already destroyed all my cred. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we'd also like to mention something we didn't get to mention last week in the heat of the moment, which was the passing of the great Hollywood director Stanley Donan at the age of 94, who, of course, gave us such great films as Singing in the Rain and On the Town and Blame It on Rio. Okay, maybe not all... <laughs> But it did have Michael Caine in it, and we're talking about Michael Caine tonight. Yes, Stanley Donan, what a director. Now, if you go through, anyone uh, cares to go through his filmography, it's uh, you'll hit the floor. It's just incredible. As you said, Singing in the Rain, On the Town, Royal Wedding, which um, was copied in the fly, the David Cronenberg fly for the ceiling walk. So they used the same technology that Stanley Donan used in Royal Wedding to make Fred Astaire walk on the or dance on the ceiling in that case, which leads us to the music video that Stanley Donan uh, actually directed, which was Lionel Richie's Dancing on the (laughs) Ceiling. Dancing on the Ceiling. So that's no doubt why he was brought in to do that. But uh, he did charade, funny face, lots of stuff with um, uh, Fred Astaire, Pajama Game, Bedazzled. The original Bedazzled. Um, It's just an incredible filmography. 94, you know, we'll all miss him, but what a wonderful age and what a wonderful legacy to leave. So many classics. I mean, you know, people should be lucky enough to make one or two classics in their lifetime, and this guy's made a dozen. Exactly. Vale, Stanley Donan. So let's get into The Guilty, shall we? 
So, already picked up for an American remake with Jake Gyllenhaal, Danish director Gustav Muller's debut feature throws us into a police dispatch centre in Copenhagen, where we meet Asger Holm, played by Jakob Sedergren, a hot-headed but dedicated cop who's been assigned to phone duty due to a pending disciplinary hearing that's seen him put off the street. Thinking the job is a bit of a lark at best, a waste of his time at worst, Asger is being dismissive with most of his calls before hearing from a woman named Eben, who is terrified and seems to have been abducted. As he tries to ascertain Eben's situation and determine her location, Asger is making calls to local divisions and other dispatch operators to try and get Eben some assistance, but his impatience at their processes and feeling of obligation to help her start causing him to make some impetuous decisions and some ill-advised calls and decisions which start providing some clues as to why he might be being dragged before his superiors in the first place. But that's not all. Asger starts calling around and uncovering more information. Eben's situation is a lot more complex and a lot stranger than it originally seems. Emma, did the guilty keep you hanging on the telephone or did you just want to hang up? <laughs> I was hanging on. I tell you what, I was hanging on. I, I think this film um, is so inspirational on at so many levels. Uh, first of all, and in some ways I want to throw back to you, Paul, because being a micro-budget indie filmmaker, I'm, I'm hoping or I'm assuming this film would have been very exciting to you because it just showed that you don't need a lot of means to make a good film. You can just, you have if you have a good story, you've got a good story, good uh, script, and in this case a good actor. That definitely, it really, really hinges on um, the the main actor who's what, ja- uh, Jakob Sed- Sedegren? Yeah, Jakob Sedegren I'm Jakob going with. Jakob Sedegren, um, who's incredibly Danish looking. Um, Couldn't be more Danish. <laughs> he's so Danish looking. Um, I'll, we'll probably see him in the next season of Vikings or something like that. <laughs> but uh, he's an incredible, very tense performance, very close, non-flashy. I kind of thought of a lot of films, something like Oliver Stone's Talk Radio. Even though that does go out of the studio, it's something that um, is in a very contained space. But that film is <laughs> typical Oliver Stone, very, very flashy. And this keeps it doesn't try and do any camera trickery at all it's um uh beautifully beautifully directed um and in in a lot of ways you do, you're just not conscious of the direction because you are just listening to what's going on and reading the subtitles because <laughs> it's in danish um but also focusing in on the minutiae of this film so things like there he talks uh, as he's talking on the phone there's this little blue light that flashes on his headset and yes. i became kind of mesmerized <laughs> as soon as the film started that was the very first thing that I noticed and I thought is there something wrong with the screen? Should that be happening? (laughs) Yeah. And it was hypnotic. Because it was in some ways it was the only colour. It was a very Mm. muted sort of um, uh, wooden sort of grey blue palette. So uh, this very bright blue light and the sty in his eye. He had a sty in his eye that I was focused on. It's funny because I kept thinking at one point like he's tearing up. No, and it's, it's not the, the style, yeah. which works in because he's obviously under a lot of stress. So it kind of works well with his character. You know, I don't think it was a makeup style or anything. I think it was just something that Jakob probably rocked up on the day and they went, hey, this will work. Keep it. Keep <laughs> the let's, style. Let's Use go. that. <laughs> 
But, uh, yeah, this is one of those films, as I said, it just it's going to make so many people go and pick up cameras and or iPhones or whatever they need to to, to make a film because this is just a, a strong script, script. It's nothing revolutionary, I won't say that, just a, a strong story. Yeah, well done. I thought there's something very remarkable about a film that is so contained um, that just makes you you know, just want to keep going with it like this did. I thought this was absolutely incredible. I really, really liked it. It was very restrained, like you were saying, there. absolutely nothing flashy about it. But um, there was just a red light towards the end. That was something that that changed. That was the only sort of dramatic Mm. uh, lighting device or camera work. Um, That was the only thing. Yeah, Yeah. one thing that also as as a fan of... You know, I, I do like horror films. I do like particularly violent films. And with certain reveals in this film, it was really interesting to see how much more effective something is when it's left up to your imagination rather than um, we'll be looking at a very different film that's in great contrast next week, The House That Jack Built, which certainly nothing's left up to your imagination <laughs> in that. But um, to have this with you know violent acts happening and not be explicitly showing them on screen i think it was really affecting i thought this was incredible i didn't paul i didn't know that this was going to be picked up for an american remake Uh, i mean it's such a high concept idea that Mm. it's executed so well guess what call guinness everybody (laughs) we We all agree Oh my god! I thought this was fantastic. Yeah. I yeah, you're right. I am a bit of a sucker for single location films because of that point of inspiration. Because I can, my partner and I can never seem to think of one ourselves. Every time we go, oh, this is a great single location idea. It ends up mutating into a several location. <laughs> several it's, so, it's so difficult. It's, it's like so incredibly difficult to keep something intriguing and rolling that is in one location. Yeah, and to keep like engaging, even, and original. And you know, people will talk about Reservoir Dogs being a single location film. It's not. You know, mm. so there's, mm. yeah, things like that. Yeah, it's like a 90% single location. They, they tend to forget the point where Steve Buscemi is running through the street exactly. with a gun. But <laughs> yes. I, yeah, and, and like you, Emma, I was shocked at how unflashy this was. Like, it's so simply put together. It's just punching for a close, going for a wide, um, you know, and, and just beautifully directed it at timing that out of like, okay, this is when we need to, and now we just sort of see his superiors kind of milling around in the background, looking around going, why has he been on the phone so long? Mm. And, and uh, Yeah, did you actually notice that, Paul, that the other people, you, there's no close-ups on anyone else. It's no. only him. And you can you can sort of recognise people, but they're more come into the background of the camera the, the camera frame, and it's more they're more like set pieces yeah. rather than actual characters. Often they're obscured. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's funny, like some I've heard someone mention that um, it's the uh, it's like the maverick, the whole maverick cop cliche of like you know someone that's likely the weapon going out and I'm going to do this and throwing mm. their badge and getting chewed out by the superiors. It's that, but all on the phone. Yeah. yeah, and there was that intense, you could see this frustration that he was going through that he wasn't able to go and do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and clearly that had do it. Yeah. gotten him into trouble as yeah. well. And But we find his humanity as well as we go through the film because at the start it was like, I'm not sure whether I like this guy. I, I thought the same thing. As soon as it started, I thought, this guy's a prick. He was know? pretty rude yeah. to the people calling emergency <laughs> line, I have to say. He was just, a bit judgmental. Oh, you hurt your knee? Call a taxi. Just <laughs> don't take drugs. Just don't do it. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, like making fun of the guy who's in the red light district and all this sort of stuff. And and he's like, oh god. And then like as the film goes on, we really see like he's hot headed, but he really wants to help. It comes from a place of you know of wanting to do good and. And, you know, his, his zealousness in that department might have gotten him in trouble as well. I just, yeah, I just found this super engaging. I mean, the, the, the plotting, the way the information unfolds and the way things come out is very intriguing as well and keeps you on the hook. And it's kind of a bit of a masterclass in how to tell a story. It reminded me a bit of the Tom Hardy film Locke. From a couple of years ago, yep. where he's on the phone in the car the whole time. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I haven't seen that. Sort of again, sort of similar sort mm. of idea, uh, but this was different. He was trying to save, basically, put his life together and save his business from going under and his relationships from crumbling. And this, he's just trying to save one person in this situation, and then finds out other things. I mean, to spoil anything would be a crime. Um, but yeah, I just found this. Very, um, and he, uh, Jakob Sedegren's performance is just really, really beautiful and letting us in and, 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 and getting us into then his also, head. It's so easy to just think about his performance, as we've, as we've mentioned up front, but um, the voices, the voice mm. actors yeah. uh, I, are excellent. I thought particularly the female that Eben. is on the phone mm. was She's very childlike, Like as she? soon as he picked the phone up to her, it was just, you know, mm. she drew you in. Mm. Yeah, and it's very, I mean, I've sort of heard some criticisms of of the narrative of this film saying, oh, it's a bit, you know, wrong the way they choose to kind of, you know, where they choose to put our sympathies in terms of the victims in here and the fact that some of the narratives are a bit twisted in terms of, you know, who's got custody of the kid and all this sort of thing. But I... I completely disagree with that. Mm. I, I think I, it's. I, I think that's being a little, little rough. I, yeah, yeah, I think it's people bringing their own agendas yeah, to the yeah, film, yeah. and it's just a fantastic piece yeah, of storytelling. It's like very it is. high concept, mm-hmm. you know. It's just a high concept, and and it's just a series of twists. It's like, well, this is these are the things we think is happening, and this is who we assume thing what we assume things are like, and then things are all kind of twisted inside out. Mm. I mean, it's. It's like good M. Night Shyamalan, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's interesting because it does, it, it, yeah, it has a feeling of the later career M. Night Shyamalan stuff, but it, it hits the mark. It's much more elegant. Yes. Much more elegant. And beautifully played and a great character piece at the centre yep. of it. I'm so glad we all like it. Yeah, we this. did. <laughs> Take note. <laughs> the Guilty is screening now at all good independent cinemas. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Travelling home on the subway, a young waitress named Frances, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, finds a stylish bag left behind on the train. Having just lost her mother to cancer, Frances is a kind soul, and after a cursory visit to the lost and found, she searches the bag for ID and decides to return the bag to its rightful owner, a woman named Greta Hedeg, our Lord and Empress Isabel Huppert. <laughs> when Francis returns the bag, Greta is thankful and lovely, inviting her in for a drink. Francis opens up to Greta about her late mother. Um, Greta reveals she was recently widowed herself, and the two strike up a friendship. Kind soul that she is, Francis continues to befriend the clearly lonely Greta to keep her company, against the advice and concerns of her housemate Erica, played by It Follows as Micah Munro. 
All goes well until, while cosily cooking dinner together, Francis discovers something that reveals that hers and Greta's paths may not have crossed completely by chance. Spooked, Francis tries to distance herself from Greta, but Greta proves herself not so easily distanced from, texting and calling and following Francis to home and work, and soon it becomes clear that Greta might want Francis for a lot more than just friendship. Sally... Did you respond to Greta's constant attention or did you regret this regret this choice? <laughs> I knew that was going to come up regretted. regretted it. Well, um I was looking very very forward to this film. I am a fan of Neil Jordan. Um I am also a fan of I guess this particular genre of film. Um I've seen a lot of people saying that this, you know, this film's something new where it's got, you know, mainly female protagonists in it, you know, um, with Greta, with Francis, with Greta's roommate. But it is something that we've seen quite a lot of before with things like The Hand That Rocks a Cradle and Single White Female, all these excellent 90s thrillers that I'm such a big fan of. Um, so, yeah, that, was, that just added another level of excitement for um, me to see this film. And I found it, unfortunately, really underwhelming. I didn't hate it by any means but I found it just reeked to me of studio interference it really did um I'm not going to give away any spoilers to endings or anything like that but it was all just a little bit lackluster that there were a lot of points in it where it should have been pushed further which would have made it a much more interesting film I'm not saying by any sort of gore level but just even you know Greta and Francis's relationship there didn't seem to be any build-up to it. It was just suddenly, bam, you know, they have this really strong connection. But us as an audience haven't seen this character development, so I found it really... I, I didn't believe it. Um, and Chloe, Grace... Now, it is Mortez, isn't it? Moretz. Moretz, because yeah. we've had somebody call up before and tell us that we were saying her name wrong. So <laughs> <laughs> Big CGM fans out there. <laughs> I, I just... I, I, I really want to like her, but... The last thing that I saw her in as well, I found her really underwhelming and I found her really underwhelming in this. It was um, The Miseducation of Cameron Post Mm -hmm. where she was my least favourite thing about the film. And again here, I just just don't don't buy into that to Chloe's performances, unfortunately. I do really try with her. I didn't mind her in Suspiria, but her role was pretty... What about Carrie? The remake of Carrie. I haven't watched it ever. Oh, don't want to. Yeah, well. Was she in that? She's yeah, she Carrie. Was Carrie. Really? Wasn't she so well suited to that role? Like, no. the girl who looks like that is never going to be Carrie White. No, I know. Like, she's got those big, beautiful lips and eyebrows. Mm, and Crazy. Um, yeah, so this film was a little disappointing. By no means, but it was an enjoyable uh, film to watch. I had fun watching it, but it was pretty forgettable and... I think, yeah, I had a high expectations for it. I think for the people that were involved in making this film, it should have been a lot more than what it was. Mm. I really, I, I did enjoy it, but, but I don't think that there's anything uh, very deep about no. about Greta or anything. I, I guess call it forgettable. I don't know whether I'd say forgettable, um, but I wouldn't. It's it's something that um, I'm wondering how much I will remember it by the end of the year, let's just say. So it's it's 
what I called overripe. It's very, without saying camp, it's uh, it's got this, it's definitely plays for uh, the, 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 the stings, you know, where there's certain revelation and the music wells up in oh, a certain the way. Music. Oh, God. And the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it does it. It's it works in a very heavy-handed fashion on purpose. You know, it's 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 definitely on purpose. And um, it's the kind of film that does play out particularly well in a cinema um, because you get the audience reaction, and, it, and it's it's sort of a cathartic um, experience to see a film like this in the audience with an audience because it's okay to yell out and it's okay to like. Bleh, I saw it at, at Nova last night, and it was turned up incredibly loud and there was one bit I think I was saying to Faith before that someone in the audience just went, that's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is great. You know, this is this is one of the charms of um, horror movies and it is pitched as a, a horror as well um, and comedy, that they are great audience experience films. And, um, and I think that Greta is, it's a great date movie, let's say. I think that it would be something <laughs> that you could take a look <laughs> I'm sorry. Emma. <laughs> well, well, no, I totally think it is. I don't know what you get up to on dates, but yeah. because it's it's fun, you know. Obviously, I watch way too many horror movies because it doesn't affect me. You know, I did like the the um, the casting of Isabel Huppert as this. Um, as the stalker she was great, she's yeah. so because she's such a little bird you know and there's nothing uh physically you know domineering or um you know uh scary about her yet uh, she managed to create a very scary character that could overpower someone um by using certain means uh i did find it very interesting that it was this was the decision for Neil Jordan after five, uh, seven years, I think it is, since he did Byzantium, which I really loved, um, with uh, Saoirse Ronan and um, Gemma Arterton. Gemma Arterton, great little vampire film. I saw that he, he decided that he, he wanted to take this on because of the female stalker element, because he thought it was something so new and revolutionary. Well, that's that. That, um, that is unusual because I, I could. For him to say that, because there is a whole string of female stalker films. So many. In fact, they're some of of my favourite, you know, just weekend movies to watch. He also said that this was super appealing to him because it wasn't a vampire, a monster horror film. It was just a person. Which has also never been done before, apparently. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, that's really odd that he would say that. Yeah. Maybe he hasn't watched a film in the last seven years. <laughs> I thought you were about to say 70. 70, yeah. Well, I was going to give him some, you know, leeway yeah. there. But, yeah, very yeah, very strange for him to say that. It is a slightly different um, motivation she has to stalk her, which um, I thought maybe that was what he found more interesting. Uh, I think there's assumptions made that of what, she, what her motivation is, um, that's probably the most interesting part of it because it was fairly stock standard. But I enjoyed it. I did actually enjoy the yeah, experience. Yeah, it was fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I thought this was garbage. Um, <laughs> Sal, it's like you're reading from my notes. Like so much of this, it felt like I actually, I actually went deeper. Um, it felt like the 
the sleepy spawn of late 80s telly movies and one of those like early 90s thrillers that was somehow crapped out to cinemas like Silent Fall and The Crush. Like it felt like... With some- Alicia Silverstone. Yes. Yeah, that movie's good though. And, yeah, and Silent Fall with Liv Tyler. Like it's just like, it, it's like bargain basement so much of it. And it's like, I, I just felt like... And it somehow lacks the courage to go full out bonkers, as yeah, you were saying. Yeah, that, that's. I was. There were so the many gore. opportunities. Like, yes. Yeah. It's just like it's it's so dull, and the whole thing just kind of I, I, I mentally checked out of it about thirty or forty minutes in. Mm. I was just. Have you uh, seen Obsessed with Beyonce I and have Idris not. Elba? <laughs> yes, that's another female stalker <laughs> film. Everyone must see that movie. It's good. Obsessed. Not only that, but Beyonce and Idris Elba's child looks like Jay Z. Oh wow! It's Was amazing. it Jay Z playing the baby? <laughs> <laughs> like Little Man, they just uh, <laughs> mini Jay Z. Yeah, I, it's it's the kind of thing where the music sweats over time to make it work. Like mm. like when she looks yeah. at the cupboard and there's the six bags, and it's like, and it's like, why is someone having a lot of the same bag inherently scary? That, that a, I love that moment though. <laughs> I <laughs> thought the same thing. I was like. I don't think that's a... I wouldn't get alarmed if I opened, like, a friend's cupboard and there was a lot of the same bag. I just think, oh, they really like that bag. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and the, or there a, was also... a female version of Einstein. Yeah. You know, wearing yes. the same suit. Yeah. And there was also that, <laughs> that moment where she looked on the subway and Greta was there and that... And like nothing made any sense. Like it's, I'm just going through. It's like, you know, if you're trapping one girl at a time, why not just use the one bag? Why keep the post-it notes? Why does it's like? Can she teleport? Because she's insane. She somehow gets on. Like there's a scene where where Micah Monroe runs for a bus, and Greta, who's been behind her the whole time, somehow is on the bus before her. And it's like, is is Isabel Huppert Nightcrawler? from the X-Men now? <laughs> like, what the heck is going on? So you didn't see that little bit where she was skiddling up the wall behind her? And must have deleted that. That was a bit from Royal Wedding and the Fly. <laughs> oh, the Fly. It's, it's, it's just one of those films where, like, and, like, I'm with you on Chloe Grace Moretz. I, I think... I think it's look. I mean, she's. I'm sure she's a sweet person. I, I think we just want to get to the point she in our culture. She speaks highly of you, Paul. That's great. I hope she's not listening. I think we need to admit, as a culture now, that she just took. She basically won her way to a place of prominence because she swore a lot as a child in a film called Kickass. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind yeah. of what it's like. Oh, a little girl says the c word, and then from there, I just don't. Very good. Um, was, she, was she in? No, she wasn't. I was going to say, was she in Super 8? But it wasn't. That no. was Elle Fanning, yes. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, and everyone else in this film, it feels like they should kind of know better. Like, Micah Monroe has been great in other things. But in this, she's like, oh, why are you going, why are you friends with such an old lady? Like, there's lots of ageism in this film as well, which is just with some quite, of the characters. I've, I've noticed, though, I've clocked this thing where there's this, uh, you know, dumping on sort of uh, young people like, 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 and, you know, answering their phones while doing yoga and all this sort of seemingly shallow behaviour. But then making them a bit more smarter or a bit deeper or, and, and that this film did do that mm. I mean it's, it's a big stretch to say that's the depth of the film but it it gave her she was probably Michael Monroe's character was the best character to play mm. even over I'd say Isabel Huppert's character Greta yeah like the totally unmotivated table flip that just like oh we need some excitement now flip a table um, <laughs> Zor Ashton's part where she's like 
drops a bit of exposition and rather than you know logically teaming up with this person now that they're teaming up with chloe grace now that they know what greta is instead she's like no i've got to go and be in velvet buzzsaw i'm out of here like <laughs> it's just so much of this film it's just i'm not opposed to trashy campy thrillers i think we can safely say that all of us are big horror fans yes um but i just like mine a bit more pumped up and lively this was just so predictable and dumb and i but then again, like, and, and it feels like a real, it almost felt like a deliberate ploy to, to bring in, like, the gay male crowd. It's like, because you know they're going to be chucking on this film in house parties and having a laugh over, you know, over the campy antics of Isabelle Huppert versus Chloe Grace Moretz. Like, it felt you, cynical in that my, level. My favourite, absolute favourite moment of this film was there's, you'll know it if you, if you go and watch it, there's a particular scene with um, Isabelle Huppert where she is doing, like, some fancy footwork in the background. <laughs> that's great. That was my favourite. I yeah. loved it. I liked her approach yeah. before the... Yeah, that's the, it. They were going the, up and you could just see her feet in the background and they were just so... She was footloose and fancy free. It was excellent. <laughs> but that kind of felt more from the heyday of Neil Jordan. That could have been taken from Company of Wolves yes. or something like that. <laughs> or dare I, I say that. Interview of the Vampire, which is a film that works perfectly as a great vampire film and a camp classic. Yes, yeah, so good. Interview of the Vampire. What a movie. Um, Oh, Neil Jordan, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> if you're still intrigued, Greta is screening now at all good independent cinemas. Three, triple, ah. King of Thieves. So this, I like Fargo, I need to preface this. This, the following, is based on a true story. <laughs> Except for the fact that he's played by Michael Caine, Brian Reader is like any gent in his late 70s, enjoying his autumn years in style, going to fancy restaurants and jazz bars with his wife Lynn, played by Francesca Annis, until the moment Lynn passes away. Not a spoiler, it's in the first five minutes, folks. And Brian is left bereft, his life empty. At Lynn's funeral, we get to meet a few of Brian's oldest friends, Terry, Jim Broadbent, Kenny, Tom Courtney, and Danny Ray Winston, who, other than all being of advanced age, played by legends of British film and having names that end in Y, they're all what would at one time be referred to as proper villains. They're former professional thieves who have served various stretches in prison. We quickly learn that Lynn, uh, Lynn set Brian on the straight and narrow, and now, despite the fact that she's barely been laid to rest, the old gang are egging Brian on to get back into the game. The final shove that pushes Brian over the edge is a mysterious, awkward man known only as Basil, played by Charlie Cox from Netflix's Daredevil. Who, seen, who claims to have a way into the Hatton Garden safe deposit facility, smack in the Diamond District of London, a score full of cash and diamonds that's fascinated the older men for decades. Appetite officially whetted and no loving wife to bring him back to his senses, Brian indeed gets the old gang back together to plan and execute a daring heist. But the heist doesn't go completely to plan. Thieves drop in and out of the picture, and the maxim about honour among thieves gets a vigorous aquatic workout. Emma, did King of Thieves have you reaching for a Bex and a lie down, or did it steal your heart? <laughs> Bex and a lie down, baby. <laughs> I thought this was a hot mess. This was a a total mess. I, I can't. James James Marsh um, as a director. I'm starting to realise that he's pretty. He's pretty <laughs> quotidian as a director. He's he he, he seemed to <laughs> just. 
you know, just lacklustre, really. I think he's best at his documentaries. So Man on a Wire and Project Nim. Oh, my God. You know, great, great docos, um, very commercial docos, but really great documentary films. And it seems that he can't bring this over into the fictional uh, realm, even though this was based on a true story. Uh, I would have... I don't know how close to the true story this has been, but I felt that maybe they needed to take more liberties <laughs> with it. This, as um, Sally was saying about Greta, that you felt that it had um, it smacked of uh, studio interference. This did for me as well. I kind of had... It seemed like the tone was all over the place. He didn't know what tone to get. Whether... I, I, am I making an Oceans film? Am I making a more serious heist film? Um uh, do I want more comedy? Um, it yeah, felt very ageist in its comedy. It was like, let's make fun of these old gents, you know. And uh, and while, you know, uh, while Michael... Ca- Look, Michael Caine and Ray Winston were essentially playing themselves, <laughs> which they do a lot. But someone like Jim Broadbent was excellent in it. I thought he, you know, Jim Broadbent will always bring something different to his characters. Michael Gambon was great. And there was also uh, the guy who played Kenny. Who's he? He was... Uh, Tom Courtney. Tom Courtney. Yeah. Billy Liar, Saturday Night, Sunday yeah. Morning. And he was, he was excellent. This film really rode on its cast, but... Um, Boy, did it. Mecked, yeah, it sure, it sure did, but messed it up with the, the direction. Do you think that it should... How could they get it wrong with that? I, I, oh, have, they I haven't got seen it wrong. King of Thieves, so... They got it wrong. This but also, I was going to take my dad to see it. Maybe I, I won't now. <laughs> Uh, I would suggest not to, yeah. I, I, look, I think there were a lot of people who will just sit there and watch this for the cast and be quite happy with it. But um, also just music. We played two tracks from um, that film tonight and they, they, they're great tracks, don't get me wrong. But then all the incidental music, which is, what's his name, Benjamin Wolfish or something? He's got, oh, I should look him mm, up. Yeah. Benjamin Wolfish, I think his no, name is. No, I think is. you are correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He did, um, you know, uh, Blade Runner 2049, oh, for example. Wow. Yeah, I know. And this was awful. This music, I felt, was there was no room to breathe between. It was just track buttressed up against track and sort of stuff Look going all the time. It's like, can you shut up? It just kept on going. Also, I've actually been lucky to uh, do a lot of research into heist films recently uh, for another project I was doing. And the, it seems to be that the good heist film always revolves around a good heist and especially in the way that the heist is filmed. Probably uh, this was just cut, cut, cutty cut, 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 cut. It, it, was, it didn't give room for the actors, these great actors, to actually perform. It just cut up their performance constantly. Uh, it didn't seem to make much of the, the heist itself. There was much more to be mined from the heist. I mean, you think of these, you know, something like Rafifi or Le Cirque Rouge, and those heists are so great because they're silent and it's all about their communication. But also it shows all the little intricate details of the heist. You see them planning it and you think, how is this going to work? I don't understand why they're putting flour on that or something, you know, and then it all comes together in this tense heist. This was a really throwaway heist sequence. And um, and then in the aftermath, 
there were a couple of moments, especially with Jim Broad, um, Broadbent's character, where I could see it going into something really dark. And those characters could have been given, you know, it could, it could have had a much nastier vibe, this film. It seemed like it had a lost opportunity where it just they thought, oh, no, let's slap some jokes in again and let's do the funny old man stuff. Let's let's have Tom Courtney fall asleep. Like somehow he had narc- narcolepsy <laughs> through this whole film. Very, very disappointing, shall I say. Go and see The Italian Job. Go and watch Michael Caine in The Italian Job. Now, this is interesting to say that (laughs) because throughout the movie... They keep showing, they, they keep making this motif of showing highlights from British gangster films of the past. And at some points, even mirroring, like you have a shot of Michael Caine now, and there's a shot of him from Get Carter. You have a shot of Ray Winston now, there's a shot of him from Scum. Oh, really? That That's interesting that they yeah, would but do that. Not but even as good as it, it that sounds. That sounds great. But <laughs> it like, also, that sounds amazing. it's very quick. Like, it's okay. very quick, like everything in this film. But it. The the problem is that King of Thieves suffers by comparison because you just go, I want to see that. Exactly. I want to see that movie. Where, yes. I want to see that movie. And so, you know, some of them I know and want to see, but others it's like, I don't, that looks really interesting. And so it just kept reminding you that, of other better films. <laughs> and <laughs> I look, I mean, I thought this was the very definition of, oh, fine, it's fine. I mean, the cast are fun. It's just, I mean, the thing is, it's so weird that you've got this story that obviously made a great story in The Guardian and Vanity Fair, but as a movie, it just feels so played out. Because not mm. only are, you know, you have so many heist movies, that the, the, the old old folk pull off a heist thing has become a genre in itself over the last few years. We had <laughs> The Old Man and the Gun last year and that was a great film. Yeah. That was yeah. excellent. You've yeah, got really beautiful. From the sublime like that to the ridiculous like Golden Years, which was another British film that screened a couple of years ago. Uh, going in style, stand-up guys, like there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah. And it's because seniors make up so much of the movie going public these days and this felt like such a grab for that market. It was like, and it's even made by, I think a clue is always Studio Canal. Whenever Studio Canal makes something, expect it to be for the seniors market. Um, <laughs> that, a lot of their films, will they have Bill Nye in there? Yes, maybe. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of Bill Nye in, in, involvement. But more so, you know, um, just, yeah, just very... Um, see, that was one of my complaints with Stan and Ollie last week. That was Studio Canal. Just saying. <laughs> um, we get, Although we do get Ray Winston's audition to join the trip with a quick Michael Caine impression. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, cut you into... Hang on. <laughs> no, I didn't approach Loaded that right. Loaded the bloody I doors off. <laughs> <laughs> Got to cut you into chunks. Um, <laughs> I just... And I kept wanting to be a... Like, I kept expecting there to be a twist somewhere. It's like, oh, is the young guy... Get, is there a revenge plot? Is Michael Caine playing possum and he's going to uh, double-cross everyone at the end? No. No, uh, it's just playing out the way you'd think it would and everybody, you know, just sort of ambles to the end. I did like, like you, I thought Broadbent was the biggest surprise in the film. It's amazing. He always, you know, he plays such a soft, doddering kind of guy and then in this he's convinces as a total hard man. Like yeah. He fixes those blue eyes on you and you're terrified. Mm. Um, I thought he was very, very good. Um, but, yeah, it was just so kind of simplistic. Believe it or not, this is the fourth screen adaptation of this robbery. Oh, really? And the robbery only happened in 2015. It's what other ones? Crazy. There's there's a it's film called nuts. One Last Heist, aka The Hatton Garden Job, yeah. which kind of has the low budget cast version of this one. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, there's Hat- Hatton Garden, The Heist, on which there are very few details. And there's another one that was a TV series, like a TV miniseries called Hatton Garden, which was scheduled to be broadcast but then pulled and hasn't been screened mm. to this day. Yeah. So th- obviously the 
just jumped. The British media just jumped on this story yeah, wow. as as a thing to go with. I mean, I don't know how much of the like the Basil character's sort of motivations and where he goes, like how much of that is true. Like that doesn't that seems to be they've taken license with that. Yeah, I didn't think he was very good. I think he was shown up. Um, Charlie Cox is yes, it? Yeah. yeah, he was really shown up by the rest of the cast as well. You know, he was in there with some pretty big heavyweights. So yeah, you know, he's probably. Room. Yeah, I think he was. Um, he was getting squashed. Yeah. yeah. I just kept, it's like, why aren't you blind? Why aren't you fighting crime on the streets of Hell's Kitchen? <laughs> big Daredevil fan. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I like you. I didn't I didn't hate it, but I just sort of felt like, eh, it's just a big old shrug. Yeah, it kind of made me, it did actually annoy me. There was yeah. a lot of parts in it that annoyed me, and especially when you see something like The Old Man and the Gun, which was just um, a, a beautiful, really, the, it's very it's a similar but not similar film it's a similar in concept because it is another one that's based on a true story it is another one about you know and an old gang the old guy gang but um that film for example just got the tone so right mm. and it was so unique um this one yeah old guys oceans 11 nah, doesn't no nah, didn't <laughs> quite a, work cut a million miles a minute oh like, crazy <laughs> why why i don't know yeah, that for was this such movie. a bizarre thing to do but anyway yeah strange choices that's why i feel that there could have been some sort of studio interference there maybe we can't blame james marsh but we will for the sake of this show. His, his <laughs> filmography tends to, you know, begs to yeah. differ. <laughs> King of Thieves is screening now in cinemas large and small across Australia. Tonight uh, we spoke about The Guilty, uh, King of Thieves and Greta, which are screening at all good independent cinemas, and in the case of King of Thieves, some Hoyts and Village cinemas. Uh, next week, The Cave will be digging into Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built. Ooh. <laughs> Asghar Fahadi's new film, Everybody Knows, and the Australian indie Reflections in the Dust. Uh, you can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand and you can subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever you else, wherever you else, wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast and to Carl Chapman for panelling the show. I've got to come up with cool names for you too, like, you know, like Batlin, Bobby. Yeah, I gotta, I'll work on that. Um, <laughs> um, so I'd like to say good night from me, good night from Emma, good night from him, <laughs> and good night from Sally. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.